The topic, Jesus describes eternal torment using the imagery of worms gnawing the body for eternity. Tie of our message, gumming worms. <laughs> Father, thank you for our morning. We appreciate the opportunity to open up our hearts to praise you. Our praise is more than preparation for the word. It's a genuine, heartfelt response of who you are and what you've done for us. But at the same time, we do feel ready to hear the word of God. We want to continue to have ears to hear what you say to us and to our church. And so bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Some of the greatest speeches in American history have been the shortest. I was surprised the first time I realized that Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was a mere 272 words. It took him under three minutes to deliver it. Franklin D. Roosevelt's Pearl Harbor Address, known for the phrase, a date that will live in infamy, was just seven minutes long. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, 17 minutes in length. There's a saying among writers, concise is nice. It's not easy to be concise, however. You have to work harder at it than if you ignored time constraints. Jesus was the greatest teacher of all time. Fully God and fully human, filled with the Holy Spirit. He had the greatest content and the greatest authority of any teacher ever. Jesus was concise. The Sermon on the Mount, which is one of Jesus' longer talks, can be recited out loud in under 13 minutes. The words in red in our text today can be recited in about two minutes. I'll organize my thoughts about what Jesus said around two points. Number one, always choose last first. And number two, never forget fire lasts. First of all, in verses 33 through 41, always choose last first. If I were to ask you to name one of Jesus' primary teaching methods, you'd probably say parables. It's true, Jesus taught by use of parables, but he also extensively used paradox. A paradox is a true statement that either is contrary to conventional wisdom or on the surface it seems absurd. Here are three examples of Jesus' paradoxes. To save your life, you must lose it. He said, whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. To reign, you must serve. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. To be exalted, you have to be humble. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. The paradox Jesus introduces in our text today is that if you desire to be first, choose to be last. And so verse 33, then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, guys, what was it you disputed amongst yourself on the road? I'm loud. I forget that I'm loud. I think people can't hear me, but they can. It's very embarrassing for my wife, and you should pray for her anytime you see us in public. Or hear me in public, I guess. Some of the guys a few years ago, they were listening to old Bible studies uh, at a pastor's conference at Calvary Costa Mesa. And they came up and said, hey, listen to this. That's you laughing uh, <laughs> above 2,500 other people. So, so what are you trying to say? But anyway, Jesus overheard his guys disputing. How very sad for the Lord. 
The 12 did not seem to be sensitive at all to how Jesus must have been feeling that afternoon. The Lord had just told them he was going to be betrayed and killed. You'd think they would want to minister to him in some way, but not disappoint him by arguing amongst themselves. One of the most penetrating questions we can ask ourselves is, what was it you disputed among yourselves? Whether it's at a board meeting or a Bible study or some other gathering, we must consider how our disputing might affect the heart of our Savior as well as our witness to the church and to the world. Verse 34, but they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. I'm pretty astonished at this. Jesus asked 12 grown men who had dedicated themselves to following him, who were submitted to him as his disciples, a direct question. Not one of them answered him. At best, it's rude and disrespectful. And by the way, make note of the fact they did not consider Peter the greatest. He was not their leader. He would become more prominent after Pentecost as a spokesman. But even then, James, the half-brother of Jesus, seems to have been the more prominent leader in the church at Jerusalem. These guys were thinking only of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God on earth. If Jesus were about to establish that kingdom, he'd need to be filling positions very soon. Since they were the king's special 12, certainly they'd be administrating the kingdom with him and for him. So verse 35, he sat down, called the 12, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Might as well read if as since, since you desire to be first because they were desiring to be first. They wanted to be first among others in the sense of being over them, of ruling over them. Now, it's part of human nature to want to advance. And it's not always a bad thing to advance in the military, at your job, those kinds of things. But in service to Jesus, you should want to be first in a spiritual sense. Always exercise your choice to be last and to be the least. It's what Jesus did. He left heaven to come to earth as a man in order that he might serve mankind as our sacrifice for sin on the cross. It embodied being last of all and the least of all as an example to us. Verse 36, then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now this is very interesting. I think this can only be understood in terms of the context, the overall context of what's happening here in these pivotal chapters of the Gospel of Mark. The kingdom of God on the earth that Jesus had been offering was going to be postponed. The Jewish religious leaders rejected Jesus. Having rejected the king, they also rejected his kingdom. And so Jesus would ascend into heaven. He'll return a second time to establish that kingdom. But at this point, no kingdom for you. As the New Testament unfolds, you see that instead of a kingdom, the church is described, and one of the metaphors used to describe it is that it's going to be a household of faith. And so Jesus is saying, guys, no kingdom but instead, there's going to be a household of faith. Instead of ruling over men in a kingdom, in the intervening church age, the disciples would need to be treating people the way you treated children in a household. 
They weren't going to reign over subjects as they hoped and thought. They were going to receive saints, nurturing them and building them up. And then Jesus said that to the extent a disciple receives saints in that way, he's receiving himself and God the Father. And so that's going to be the plan. Forget about cabinet positions in the kingdom and dial in to being a steward in a household where you're dealing mostly with children that can be unruly. Now, one of the 12, John, was either confused or he just felt like complaining. Verse 38, now John answered him saying, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. We forbade him because he does not follow us. Now, does not follow us is intended to communicate he's not part of our group. He was not one of the 12. After all, weren't the 12 special? Weren't they personally chosen by Jesus in cooperation with the Father? Didn't they have jackets that said the 12 on it? <laughs> Decals on their, you know, and I mean, they, these guys, I mean, they formed this inner circle. You couldn't help but feel like you were somebody special. You were one of the 12, 12, a big number to Israelites, 12 tribes and all of that. These guys were the new 12. And they had thoughts of their positions in the kingdom. John was being profoundly immature. Today we would say he was like acting like he was in junior high. After all, the 12 traveled with Jesus. They lived with Jesus. They had immediate access to Jesus. John was part of an inner circle along with his brother James and Peter that was with Jesus on certain amazing occasions like the rising of a little girl from the dead and like the transfiguration of Jesus. Yet John was complaining that someone else was being used by God to deliver people who were oppressed by demons. And by the way, he really was delivering people. And so John is ignoring the fact that this guy is being used in a way that brings healing and help to people. It's the kind of thinking you have if you're more about the gifts than you are the giver. It's like, Lord, we're the 12, he's not, you need to put a stop to, we put a stop to this right now because we're the special ones. But Jesus said, don't forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is on our side. God wasn't just working through the 12. He had genuine believers throughout Israel who were also preaching the gospel and performing miracles. Missionaries to places where no one has ever brought the gospel often report God has already been working among the people there. Never underestimate the Lord's reach. Now, doesn't mean we shouldn't go. That's our commission, go into all the world preaching the gospel. It's not an excuse for uh, pulling back. But the truth is, the testimony of, of missionaries and the gospel is, God is working in ways that we don't often recognize. This happens even in the Bible. Back in the Old Testament, Abraham, Father Abraham, through whom the nation of Israel is going to spring and the, the Gentile nations of the world are gonna be blessed. I mean, God is zeroed in on Abraham. And then all of a sudden, there's an episode in Abraham's life where Melchizedek comes walking out of nowhere and Abraham shows him respect. Melchizedek, the priest of God. Who's that dude? Where did he come from? We don't know. We don't know anything about him other than what's told about him in Genesis and a little bit in Hebrews. But it reminds us that God 
is working in ways that we often don't know about. And you know what? That's okay. We don't have to know everything that God knows. In fact, we can't. Jesus assured John that this man would not speak evil of him. He wasn't a satanic counterfeit who would perform a miracle only to draw folks away. He was on their side in the cosmic conflict. Christians are all on the same side. Sadly, you wouldn't know it at times from observing us. Within churches and sometimes between churches, there's too much disputing over non-essential issues. We don't have to agree on everything to stand united on the same side against the devil for the gospel. And so we're, we're, if, uh, if another person is a Christian, we're on the same side in the cosmic conflict. We fight together. The reason Christians sometimes dispute, often dispute, is over non-essential issues. Uh, we joke around sometimes, it's not funny, but we make jokes about things that split churches. The color of the carpet, the color of the building, the you know, different things like that where people get mad at each other and split the church. Oh, how did your church get founded? We're the church of the brown carpet. <laughs> We split from the church of the tile runway, you know, or whatever it is and stuff. And, and it's, but there's even other non-essential gospel things like Pentecostals versus, you know, versus cessationists. And we're in the middle of all that trying to broker a compromise, you know, but Christians never know when to stop. They make all the non-essential issues essential and it makes it hard to work with one another. We ought to be able to agree on the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, but everybody thinks that their issue is also important. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. John thought the 12 should have exclusive rights to minister in Jesus' name. They're like those piracy warnings that come up on CDs you know, or DVDs. Piracy is a crime. John was saying, hey, these guys, he's pirating the ability to cast out demons. He needs to be dealt with, Lord. But Jesus pointed out that the 12 were often ministered to by others. They received the hospitality of other believers as they traveled. The implication was that all service done to the Lord, no matter how small, was equal. The disciples were not greater than the average follower. And this is something hard for us to swallow, but um, the person that does more is not necessarily greater and, and isn't loved more. And so the disciples say, hey, we're the ones that have a you know, corner on the ministry market. And Jesus says, that's just not true. You already know that's not true because you've been ministered to. When I sent you out two by two, people ministered to you in my name. And so get used to it. You're not that special in one sense. You're one of many. Elijah had this problem in the Old Testament, you remember. He won this tremendous victory over the prophets of Baal and Jezebel said, man, I'm gonna kill you. So he runs and runs and runs. He ends up in a cave and he says to God, basically, I'm the only one. And God says, yeah, not exactly. I have 7,000 people you don't know about that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Oh, huh. thanks, Lord. Thanks for telling me. And the tr truth is, to finish that story, is Elijah starts to fade after that point 
and Elisha starts to take over. So we don't want to fall into that way of thinking. Not a good way of thinking. Now, the mention of rewards is a subtle reference consistent with the change in plans. With the kingdom postponed, believers should not be looking for positions before the throne of Jesus on earth. They should be looking ahead to being rewarded at the reward seat of Jesus in heaven. The principle, always choose last first, would have prevented the disciples from all the mistakes they made in this chapter. There would have been no possibility of a dispute concerning greatness if they were choosing last first. There would be no complaining about someone from outside their group delivering people from demons if they were choosing last first. Many of the practical issues we struggle with are resolved by choosing last first. Above all, we should remember to enjoy the relationship we have with Jesus, not comparing ourselves to others or worrying about others. Our roles do not define our relationship. I'm not closer to Jesus because I'm a minister, and a missionary is not closer to Jesus than I am because he or she is out in a difficult field. We are each encouraged to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, whatever your role is. Now, as we go on in verses 42 through 50, never forget fire lasts. You're probably aware that Jesus spoke more about hell and eternal conscious torment than anyone else in the Bible. It's been estimated that he spoke of hell three times as much as he did about heaven. It prompted one person to say, and I quote, Jesus mentioned hell and destruction in 46 verses. We don't need to know Greek to be able to clearly see hell is real and eternal. I was surprised this week by a commentator I trust to be accurate who pointed out that when Jesus spoke about hell, it was always to believers and not to non-believers. Now, I didn't have a chance to ferret that out and make sure it's 100% true, but I do know something that is true. In our text today, Jesus speaks of hell and eternal conscious torment to believers. Is that because we can still go there? No, a born-again believer has been delivered from sin and Satan, death and hell. So how are we to understand this as a warning without ignoring it? Well, maybe an illustration will help. Most of us have seen or at least familiar with the film Saving Private Ryan. General George Marshall is informed that three of the four brothers of the Ryan family were killed in action and that their mother is to receive all three telegrams in the same day. He learns that the fourth son, Private First Class James Francis Ryan, is missing in action somewhere in Normandy. He orders that Ryan must be found and sent home immediately. Ryan is found, he makes it safely home, but not without significant loss of life among his rescuers. The captain who led the patrol to find Ryan, John Miller, is one of those casualties. As he lay dying, he says to Ryan, James, earn this earn it. If you are a Christian, it's because God mounted a rescue mission to find you and to save you amidst the ongoing spiritual warfare on planet earth. Your savior suffered significantly on the cross during the rescue. Because of what he did, you are delivered from sin and Satan, death and hell, and given life. Make it count. Walk in victory. Live in such a way that you will earn spiritual rewards. Then think of yourself as part of a spiritual band of brothers that is out on patrol in that conflict, seeking to bring the good news of salvation to others who are yet perishing. 
I think Jesus spoke to believers about hell to remind us of our rescue from it so that we will remember the seriousness of preaching the gospel to those who are oblivious to it but who are on the broad road that leads there. In a way, hell is more terrifying to a believer who has been delivered from ever going there than it is to a non-believer because we fully understand the very real danger we were in and that our unsaved loved ones are still in along with the rest of lost humanity. Believers ought to be affected by hell. Sometimes we have a tendency to speak of hell in terms of people going there as if we can't wait for them to get there. There's some people that we just, uh, you know, obviously they, they commit atrocities, they're terrible people, those kinds of things. But sometimes I think we relish the fact that some people are gonna die and be consigned to hell. The believer who's been saved from hell, you and I, and are eternally grateful because we were one step away. And then look around and see, these people in my family, they don't know they're on the broad way that leads to destruction. But they are. And so is most of the rest of the world. And so hell is a motivation for me as a believer because it is so real. It's, it's not really real to the non-believer, not until he begins to be drawn to Jesus Christ. And maybe sometimes that's why our preaching of hell fire doesn't necessarily reach people. Now, I'm not, we preach about hell and it's part of the gospel, don't get me wrong. But I, I think you understand what I'm saying. Jesus preached hell to believers not because we could go there, but because we aren't going there and we don't want anybody else to either. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now Jesus continues here with this illustration that saints were to be nurtured like you would children in your family. Unfortunately, you can also stumble them. You can hinder their spiritual growth, even cause them to backslide. Now why this millstone example? Is it an early Sicilian thing or what, you know? I, always tr I was always troubled by this because it sounds like, if you don't think about it, it sounds like Jesus is saying, if you stumble that little one, I'm gonna put a millstone around your neck and drop you off in the deepest part of the ocean. And that just doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? it not to me anyway. So here's what I think is going on. See if you track with this. I think it's to convey the simple truth that you should be as far from ever stumbling God's saints as it is possible to be. Someone who's weighted down by a 100-pound millstone sunk to the sea floor, that's as far away as possible. There's no way you are going to stumble anyone if you're in the, ocean, the bottom of the ocean weighted down. That's the idea. Maybe this will help. You're Christian, so I know you don't watch horror movies, but if you did, and especially werewolves, there's a lot of werewolf lore, but there's always the good werewolf who knows that he's gonna turn and doesn't wanna hurt anybody. And so what do they do? They lock him up, they chain him up, they lock him behind bars. Now he always gets out because otherwise it'd be kind of a boring movie. <laughs> Just watching him change and be everybody's safe. That doesn't sell tickets or popcorn. But that's the idea. The werewolf says, I don't want to hurt anybody, so I'm going to lock myself up and werewolf all to myself. And Jesus is saying, don't stumble anybody 
Uh, if you have to, have this to yourself as if you were at the bottom of the ocean where nobody could see you. And you know what? Paul the Apostle says something strangely similar to that without the imagery. When he's talking about the liberties in the Christian life, one of the things he says is, if you have to have liberty in an area that's going to stumble others, have it to yourself and to God. He means get by yourself and don't let anybody see you doing it. And I think he would be right on with this millstone argument. So that's what I think is going on. Jesus is saying, I should want to put a millstone around my neck so that I don't stumble one of God's little ones. How does that work out in practice? It's somewhat typical of believers who have certain liberties in Jesus to exercise them indiscriminately. According to Jesus, you can never act indiscriminately as a Christian. You can never act without careful judgment because of the seriousness of stumbling saints. Lock yourself away if you must. Jesus next explains that you should be aware of stumbling blocks in your own path. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell's fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For a teacher who was always concise, to repeat a phrase no less than three times is very significant. So let's start with that. The Greek word translated hell is Gehenna. It's a combination of two Hebrew words that are the Valley of Hinnom. It's a place south of Jerusalem where children were once sacrificed to the pagan god Molech. Later, during the reforms of King Josiah, the site became Jerusalem's refuse dump where fires burned continually to consume maggot-infested garbage and human waste. In Jewish thought, the imagery of fire and worms at Gehenna vividly portrayed the place of future eternal punishment for the wicked. Hell is like Gehenna. It's an awful, foul place on the earth that can illustrate hell to a very small extent. Hell, however, is eternal, and its suffering is eternal conscious torment. Jesus says the worm does not die, and that means eternal internal torment. The fire is not quenched, and that means eternal external torment. Now, let me mention in passing, it's become popular among Christians to argue from the Bible that there is no hell, no place of eternal conscious torment. One of the popular positions that teaches this is called annihilationism. Uh, it's easy to extrapolate what that means. It means that the wicked are annihilated as if they never existed in the first place. I have noticed this, and I, try, I want to say this kindly. A few theologians that have adopted this position over the years have done so after someone significant in their life died and, to their knowledge, was not a believer. And that, that's a person who takes hell seriously and thinks, I can't believe that my loved one is there, and they try and find an out and they come up with annihilation. And there are a couple of verses every here and there that they put forward that you, if standing alone, you might say, well, okay, I could see that. But the sheer weight of everything even Jesus said 
shows you that hell is a place, a real place, where people are going to suffer eternal conscious torment. So you'll, you'll encounter that if you haven't already. And I wish it were true. I would love to embrace annihilationism, uh, but it's just not biblical. The plain sense of Jesus' words here and elsewhere teach differently. Hell is real, and it's for those who choose to go there. And yes, you choose to go there. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to die for you, so you need not perish in hell, but instead receive eternal life now and on into heaven. To get to hell, you need to step over the body of Jesus blocking the way. You, you have to choose it. Now, before I leave the subject of who goes to hell, let me say a word about the destiny of people who are unevangelized. What if a person never hears about Jesus? We hold to a biblical position that is sometimes called the wider hope. We affirm that God in grace grants every individual a genuine opportunity to participate in the redemptive work of Jesus and that no human being is excluded from the possibility of being saved. Within this wider hope camp are different views on the nature and timing of God's offer of salvation. How does that actually work out in practice? There's different ways of thinking about it, but they all agree that there's a real opportunity to be saved. And I would cite simply what I cited earlier. Many times we have testimonies of missionaries who've gone into places where the gospel has never been preached. There's never been a testimony, no Bible, and the people's hearts are ready to receive the Lord. Whole tribes get saved because God has been working in ways that we would consider miraculous. And who am I to be John and say, Lord, this, this not right. I've got the gospel and you sent me out. It's not right that people are getting saved without me finding them. And I, that's just a terrible attitude. God is at work. We're not teaching universalism. There's no such thing as universal salvation. Jesus is the savior of all men, but especially of those who believe. The message is universal. The solution is universal. But everybody has to decide as the grace of God frees their will to make a decision whether to receive Christ or step over his body and continue on the path to hell. The other thing packed into these verses is the amputation of hand, foot, and eye. Jesus didn't need to say he was speaking figuratively because everyone understood that no amount of physical amputation would overcome the source of your sin, which is your flesh. My pastor in San Bernardino, John Miller, always used to use the example of a, uh, I think it's a made-up example, but it's a good one. 90% uh, of examples are made up, you realize that, don't you? But if it sounds too good to be true, it is. But anyway, there's a guy in one of those cultures where they would cut off your hand if you were a thief, and so he, he stole from, you know, he was a pickpocket, so he stole, and they cut off his right hand, and he stole again, they cut off his left hand. And then finally they caught him using his mouth, you know, to try and, because he's a thief. And so the idea is, that what it illustrates is, you can cut off all your appendages, you could just be a head, and you would still be sinning in your heart, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? It does, in a weird way, doesn't it? It's my own paradox. Anyway... <laughs> He was simply but powerfully saying you should take every measure to avoid sin, no matter how radical it may seem. I'll use brand new believers as an illustration. Not always, but often, immediately after a person is saved, if they're saved later in their life, 
They make radical changes. They pour out all the booze that's in their house. They flush down all the illegal drugs, maybe some of the legal ones as well. They throw out all their CDs and all of their Blu-ray discs. Uh, no one's compelling them to do that. No one said you have to do that to be a Christian. They say, I'm a Christian now. I've been saved from hell. I don't want any of this stuff that reminds me of my former life. Uh, you know, I just, let me make a clean, fresh start on the narrow road that leads to eternal life. Then over time, as you mature in Christ, things are reintroduced. Some of the music, some of the messages, some of the books, some of the, you know, this and that. Is it wrong? Not always. But each of us in conversation with Jesus needs to determine if it really is something good and profitable or if it's something we need to amputate because all it's going to do is bring us back into sin the same way it did before even though we've been delivered from it. Before we were on a road leading to hell. And Jesus said, man, it'd be better to cut off your hand than to end up there. And you know what? It'd be better to do that in our lives now than reintroduce certain things. So uh, just for each of us to think about. The idea again, make the most of the victory that was won for you on the cross. Jesus suffered and died to set you free from sin and Satan, hell and death. Why go back there and dabble with the things that uh, used to uh, you know, interest you there? For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Almost every commentator mentions that verses 49 and 50 are the hardest two verses to interpret in all the Gospel of Mark, if not in all the New Testament. When I was younger, I would have thought of that as an invitation to say, I've figured it out. But now that I'm an old man, I'm letting you know that we're not gonna figure this out today all these other guys with their 15 other ideas are smarter than us. We're just gonna say some things about it that make sense. Notice, first of all, the word everyone. Everyone will be seasoned with fire. Everyone includes non-believers and it includes believers. Let's talk about non-believers first. In context, Jesus had just been describing hell and its eternal, unquenchable fire. For non-believers, those who die without receiving Jesus, who walk over his body to get there, hell's fire will be like a seasoning rubbed all over them to preserve them. All non-believers from all time are raised from the dead in a body that is able to be tormented for eternity. Unquenchable fire, body that cannot be consumed because it's seasoned. This is terrifying. You've seen people, sadly, jump from tall buildings to escape fire because fire is so terrifying and so punishing. And so Jesus is saying non-believers are going to be seasoned with fire. They're going to burn and burn and burn forever in an unquenchable fire, but they'll never be consumed. And this... This is more meaningful to us as Christians because we, we believe it, we know it. We were on our way there. And so he's reminding us. What about believers in fire? Well, believers are exposed to a different fire. While on the earth, we're exposed to what the Bible describes as, and I quote, the fiery trial, which is to try you. 
we're told, and I quote, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we go to be with the Lord, after our death or after the rapture, I quote, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so the believer is subject to fire, not hell's fire, but the fire of trials in this life and the fire of, God's, of Jesus' judgment for rewards after this life is over. In the middle of all this, Jesus drops the word sacrifice. I don't know about you, but I always think of Romans 12:1 that we are living sacrifices on God's altar. And so we are to present ourselves every day a living sacrifice. Add to that the understanding that every day we're subject to the refining purifying fire of trials. The imagery then is of you on the altar submitted to God, subject to heaven's controlled flames. That's one way of looking at the daily Christian life. I'm submitted to God on his altar as a living sacrifice, and I know that there's gonna be flames. I'm gonna be in fiery trials. Maybe not all the time, but a lot of the times, some of those fires are gonna be hotter than others, but it's to refine me. And then one day, I'll be with the Lord, and his fire will burn away all the dross and weird stuff from my life, finally purifying and refining me for eternity. On the altar, in that fiery trial, he says you're to be seasoned with salt. Uh, we know what this means because of one of Jesus' most famous declarations to his followers. You are, what? The salt of the earth. Salt was a preservative. It was a purifying agent as well as providing nourishment and flavor. Christians are to be like that when they're out in the world. We're to be pure salt making a difference. Here's an interesting fact. According to the really smart guys who wrote the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and I quote, salt was regarded in the ancient Near East as not being destructible by fire. And so I'm a salty Christian, and God's fire is not going to destroy it. Uh, I can go on being salty through my trials. So let's put all of these thoughts together if we can. You've been saved from hell. You're to go out into the world as the salt of the earth to have a purifying, preserving effect on those who are still going to hell for lack of the knowledge of Jesus. You're to daily consider yourself a living sacrifice, realizing that on God's altar, you'll face fiery trials that are intended to further refine you. And then in verse 50, he remarks, salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. I, this is, I don't know if it's a moment of humor or not, but it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, you sometimes say, hey, pass the salt. I need to put a little bit more salt in my soup or whatever. This is a situation where it's, could you pass the salt? I need to salt my salt. My salt has no saltiness, so I need salt to put salt on my salt. And, and it's absurd. Now, some of you who are chemists... You know that salt in its pure form doesn't lose its flavor. It can't lose its flavor. The salt in Israel, however, wasn't pure. 
It could be mixed with alkali salts from around the Dead Sea. Water could leach out the pure sodium chloride, leaving the impure alkali salts intact so that it looked like salt but tasted bland. Once again, the exhortation is to make your Christian life count for something. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You're pure salt by virtue of being saved. But if you mix with the world, you can dilute salt and you can lose your saltiness. And so while people are on the road to hell, while you've been delivered from hell, while you're on the altar and uh, God's trying to refine you, if you mix too much with the world, you're gonna lose your saltiness and not make a difference. Have salt in yourselves is thus a word of correction. Instead of disputing about who was the greatest or about anything else for that matter, the 12 should strive to remain the salt of the earth in order to win the lost, nurture young believers, and avoid stumbling anyone. Instead of disputing, they should have peace with one another. Their dispute proved that they didn't understand any of the things Jesus was talking about. Having peace with one another, genuine peace, would show that they did understand it. As a greeting to other Christians, maybe we should start saying, have salt in yourself. Wouldn't that be great? Now that we understand a little bit about that, hey, God bless you, have salt in yourself. I see a t-shirt in our future. 